Hello, and welcome to the Interest Center podcast, where we connect with experts and innovators in theological education around topics important to theological school leaders. Thank you for joining us. Hello, I'm Annie Glandon, and today's episode is a follow-up to the Interest Center webinar series, Guiding Transformations. I'm here with our guest, Dr. David Rowe, who is leading this three-part series on transforming the educational model, the business model, and the governance model in theological education. A word about our guest, Dr. David Rowe is the former interim president of Lancaster Theological Seminary, the former president of Centenary College of Louisiana, and the president of the Windermere Group, LLC. An ordained United Methodist elder, David serves as a governance coach for the Interest Center and as the practice leader for private higher education consulting with AGB. He is a certified experience economy expert and holds a certificate in disruptive strategy from Harvard Business School Online. We are pleased to have him with us on the podcast. Thank you for being here, David. Oh, so glad to be here. Thank you, Annie. Appreciate the follow-up. Of course. Today, I'm looking forward to talking with you about your webinar series and specifically the session we recorded on October 11th about transforming the educational model. So to start us off, can you share with our listeners at a high level your thoughts about why the educational model and theological education needs transforming? Well, thanks, Annie. Yeah, I appreciate your your asking that question. I don't know that there's anything wrong with what we've been doing in theological education. It's just that the the market has shifted, the changes in the um, faith community and and churches and denominations uh, are shifting the demand for Uh, ordained uh, ministers in some of our traditions is really decreasing. And so one of the things we found threatened really is the business model um, of theological education that undergirds and supports the educational model. But uh, it's important that we don't just reduce theological education to a business and that we remember that at its heart, it is a mission. And we want to continue that mission. We want to support, sustain, and advance that mission going forward. Uh, but we might uh, want to find some some new ways to deliver on that mission that might depart from some of the traditions that we hold so de- so dear. So we instead of just looking at the business model, I think it's important to look at the education model and the different offerings that we uh, have that might actually support more sustainable and viable business models going forward. And so when I think about the education model, when I talk about transforming it, I I think that we just need to look carefully at what we do well and do that better and uh, look carefully at some of those things that we might need to get better at doing. Thank you for that. I I wanted to raise something from your presentation. You had framed the conversation around three steps in the transformation process, and you used the words assess, aspire, and achieve. And I wanted to know if you could just say a word about that and how that fits into your thinking around transformation. Well, as you mentioned, I'm a Methodist preacher, so I have to have three points. And so that's those are my three points, assess, aspire, achieve. Uh, aside from that, uh, when you think about transformation, we don't want to get uh, lost in a buzzword here. And we also don't want to overcomplicate it, especially in our sector. Uh, in theological education, we have really profound, deep understanding of what transformation, conversion, metanoia can mean. And uh, we've got very 
well-worked out systematic theologies around what transformation is. And so in this case, I really want to just simplify it a little bit into three steps that make it easier for us to operationalize the change that I think theological educational institutions need to be uh, thinking about. So first of all, assess where you are, know where you are, aspire, uh, be clear about where you want to go, and then set out a plan to achieve that and sustain that transformation going forward. There's often we just know what we want to achieve and we, we skip straight to that without really having a clear understanding of where we are and without having a shared and well-articulated understanding and a rationale for where we want to go and why we want to get there. The other thing that we often forget is that once you achieve something, you're not just getting across the goal line. You're actually creating a new baseline uh, for transformation. So then as soon as you achieve that, you need to learn to sustain that and continually um, assess, aspire, and achieve. Thank you. That's a really important point, specifically about achievement. During the webinar, you talked about adopting what you called a disruptive innovation mindset. Can you share with the audience what you mean by that? I'm using uh, Clayton Christensen's uh, words. You might be familiar with his book, The Innovative University, and two categories that he talks about is sustaining innovations and disruptive innovation. Sustaining innovation is the type of innovation that what he calls incumbent companies or organizations do. So like the big three automakers in the United States are constantly trying to improve their product uh, because they're not disruptive. They are actually the, the old guard that's trying to protect what business they have while other upstarts like Tesla are coming in and doing something new and innovative. And, and so the old guard, the, the incumbents have to adapt to the, the new uh, realities. And so you find that they get more into electric vehicles and they start competing with Tesla on, on their own terms. Incumbents inherently have an advantage in the marketplace until there's a major opportunity for disruption. So like Tesla's gotten in on the ground floor with electric vehicles. And so they've really pushed the incumbents to, to adapt and move into a different direction. Most of our theological educations, particularly in the mainline Protestant tradition, are what I would call incumbents. And so one of the things that incumbents can do is think that we've been here for a long time. We know what we're doing. We're really good at what we're doing. We don't need to change. And uh, then we have some other institutions, particularly uh, I, I would credit the, the more uh, evangelical uh, oriented seminaries and theological schools at being much more innovative, much more disruptive, and are causing some of the older school schools to actually have to rethink the way that we do things. So my encouragement here to have a disruptive mindset, I also encourage you to have a sustaining innovation mindset is to think about what you can do at a lower cost that you can deliver to people at a different price point. Because one of the things that traditional seminaries are finding is that there are organizations out there that are delivering the same or some version of what we do at a lower price point. And so you, you've got to figure out how to deliver it at a lower price point. The other thing is, is to begin thinking about meeting needs that uh, had previously gone unmet there may be opportunities for theological schools to do something outside of what they traditionally think of as their mission set 
that actually can meet a need in the community that they hadn't anticipated uh, before. And so kind of scanning the environment and seeing how people in the area are creating workarounds to get something done, maybe that your seminary or your theological school can help that uh, that set of individuals, that new market, that new audience, get it done in a more effective, more efficient and cost-effective way. And that's a disruptive innovation mindset. So we've talked a little bit about making these transformational changes in schools, thinking, wanting to maybe think innovatively and again, make make these changes for their schools. So I wanted to ask you, what advice do you have for theological school leaders who are thinking about making these types of changes? Where should they start? obviously assess, right? So be be clear about where you are, what you're doing well, and what you think that you could do better at, and just kind of understand where you are, where the theological landscape is. If you're related to a particular faith tradition or denomination, understand where they are relative to your institution, relative to your mission. And then the second part, of course, is just to be extraordinarily clear about where you want to go and what success looks like. And so I don't think we have any trouble having the educational qualitative successes that we want once somebody is in our system. The question is, can we get those people into our system? And so measuring success only in educational terms can be problematic if we no longer can fund the fine education that we offer. And so being robust and multidimensional in the ways that we define success and then outlining a, a plan to actually achieve that. It is change management at its at its uh, fundamental level because so much of what we love about theological education has to has to adapt to some new realities that we're facing right now. And that can cause us to question whether or not the changes we're contemplating are actually deviations from the mission. And just getting really clear about what your mission is, the mission is not to sustain the institution. The mission is to educate um, pastors or educate rabbis or to educate laity or to provide theological resources for community. We have to make sure that we, we get really clear about what the mission is and find new ways that we can meet that instead of tying our mission to a specific institutional incarnation that happens to be the way we've done it for the recent memory. Thank you. I know that that's really helpful for the leaders that will be tuning in to this episode. I wanted to take a little bit of time, as we mentioned during the webinar, we would discuss some of the questions that were raised by registrants during this particular episode. So I'm going to pose two of those questions to you now. And the first is, how do you best frame this conversation for those that are outside of the institution? Yeah, it's tough enough to frame this conversation for people inside the institution, and it it really is uh, difficult to talk about this with people outside the institution as well. Our institutions not only have internal stakeholders, but obviously out, uh, external stakeholders, and the you know we have donors, we've got alumni, you've got members of the community, you've got members of the denomination, and I think it's important for us to first of all to know and recount the history of our institutions. And in most cases, in most cases, the current incarnation of the institution is quite different from the original incarnation of the institution. 
And we tend to think about what we've been doing for the last 20 years is what we've been doing for the last 150 years. But you'll find in a lot of institutional histories that they've moved locations, they've affiliated with different denominations or faith traditions, they've become more ecumenical, they've uh, moved from preparing pastors to preparing chaplains, they have, have really shifted over time. So there have been these kinds of shifts in the past. And so just disarming a little bit the notion that what you're doing is something novel and unprecedented is extremely important. And to look back at the different times in history when the institution has had to adapt. So how did it adapt during World War II, during World War I? How did it adapt during the uh, Depression? How did it adapt during you know, the, the rise and decline of different religious movements within the country, different political movements? Uh, in the in the society, it's really important to go back and realize that this isn't the first time that the institution has had to make this kind of change. And so when you put it in that longer and broader context for those outside the institution, they feel less like you're taking away something that they think is uh, precious and dear and, and making it less than, but you're really trying to adapt and identify what the new incarnation of this mission is going to be going forward so that we don't actually lose this mission altogether. We have one more question that I wanted to raise that came from registration for the webinar this week. And I acknowledge all of the changes that theological education has undergone and will continue to undergo, especially as it relates to the pandemic and the shifts in the religious landscape that I think you mentioned at the top of the call and with even more changes on the horizon for educational models, how do you get buy-in from staff and administration and faculty to make these types of transformational changes? Yeah, so one of the ways that this was phrased is, is this a heart issue or a head issue? And if it's a, if it's a heart issue, how do you actually get people on board and get excited about doing this? If it's a, a head issue, it just you know seems like everybody would rationally agree. Well, it's obviously a little bit of both, and it's probably easier to get our minds around, get the case for change around the more head issue, the logic, the numbers, the rationale. But change doesn't happen just because it's the rational thing to do. And in fact, a lot of the resistance to change that we run into is more on the affective or the emotional side. And it's important to pay attention to that. You can't just come out and say, hey, you know, here are the numbers. It makes sense. We have to change. You really have to understand what that means. I find the nice bridge between those two, again, is the idea of mission and understanding that you're stewards of the mission, not stewards of the institutional form that the mission is taking right now. And we often get really confused about that. Our job is not necessarily to maintain the campus as it is, to maintain the curriculum exactly as, as it is to maintain the experiences as they've been for the last 20 or 30 years, but to find out that the, what is it at the core of our mission and how do we make sure that that's moving forward? I want to share a story of a faculty member who came to me as we were thinking about entering into the combination relationship with Moravian University while I was at Lancaster Theological Seminary. This particular faculty member had um, multi-generational memories of the physical campus of Lancaster Theological Seminary, uh, great memories with her father, 
there and the had taught there, had given devoted her entire professional life there. And even before her profession, professional life, she was connected with uh, the seminary. So really getting in, engaged with and supportive of a transformational change as significant as a combination agreement was both a head issue and a heart issue for her. And she helped me understand the heart dimensions of what she was going through and how challenging it was for her to make that choice. And you really have to honor the fact that people need that space to process that kind of change. And when the way she made sense of that was wanting to make sure, at least my impression of the way she made sense of it was wanting to make sure that that mission continued, that the mission was not imperiled by being wed to a certain way that that mission is being carried out right now. And so it's not an easy change for people. And we, we have to remember that institutions are not buildings. They're a web of relationships and often they're a web of multi-generational relationships. So they expand geography and time and those webs entangle our hearts. Thank you so much for sharing that story. I think that's important for people to hear and help people remember it's important to honor people's feelings and the the big change processes. This has been really helpful to take a deeper dive into this topic. But before we go, I wanted to ask, what would you say is a question that board should be asking themselves or thinking about as a result of listening to today's episode? Are we stewards of the mission or stewards of the institutional form? that the mission is taking right now. And the secondary question is, are we acting in the long-term best interest of the mission of the institution, or are we trying to preserve the last iteration of this mission? David, I wanted to thank you again for being with us today. Again, I have been with Dr. David Rowe, who is leading a webinar series with the Interest Center on Guiding Transformations. Thank you again, David. Thank you, Annie. Thank you for listening to the Interest Center podcast. For more information about this podcast and other episodes, and for additional resources, visit intrust.org.